From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your house. Richard Serrett here. Welcome to all of you listening in on one of our affiliates. If you want to watch the proceedings and not just listen, you can watch the live stream of the program on YouTube. Just go to my Twitter feed at Richard Serrett. Click on the tweet at the top of the uh, the feed that says HOA link. And you're in. And if you happen to miss the live stream, don't forget the show gets archived and you can get, you can go back anytime and watch and listen. You just have to go to, um, to YouTube and uh, search The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett and our YouTube channel will come up and there you go. Uh, Albert and Eric are here. Tim Spreen, my technical producer on the other side of the glass, employing his technical wizardry. So we are ready to launch. Now my ears and eyes. The mighty Aphrodite just sent me this. Um, Infowars.com is reporting weird nationwide Walmart closures sparking conspiracy theories. Five different Walmarts have suddenly closed claiming plumbing issues. And theories are flying uh, around the country. States suddenly announcing, Walmart that is, announcing they were closing down for six months to deal with plumbing issues. Five different stores. Walmarts in uh, Pico Rivera, California, Livingston, Texas, Midland, Texas, Brandon, Florida, and Tulsa, Oma, all made the announcement we're closing for plumbing issues. And the news, as I say, sparks is sparking wild conspiracy theories with some linking the closures to Jade Helm, the upcoming military exercise which some fear is a dry run for martial law. A Walmart would make a perfect FEMA detention facility. See ya in the camps, ranted one respondent. Again, this is being reported at Infowars.com. Another wild theory is that the stores are being decontaminated after receiving radioactive food from the Fukushima region. More national, more rational theories involve speculation the Walmart has failed to adhere to building codes and may be using the plumbing excuse as a cover to get rid of dangerous construction materials like asbestos. What's, about, what's bizarre about the closures is that they seem to have been announced with no planning whatsoever. Shelves were fully stocked and employees were given no warning before they were laid off. At one Walmart store in Pico Rivera, California, employees protested the fact that they had been laid off with just five hours' notice. Anyway, that's, again, uh, being reported at Infowars.com, and we'll keep our eye uh, and ears wide open, eyes and ears wide open, uh, to follow up on that story. So thanks to our conspiracy show correspondent, the mighty Aphrodite, for that. All right, uh, just a quick reminder, my last reminder, if you haven't already done so, follow The Truth too. one week away, Sunday, April 26th, the Regent Theatre. And uh, I was speaking with Rosemary Ellen Guiley today. She's very excited about flying up here next week to discuss spirit communication. And uh, she's just trying to figure out how is she going to get her, her spirit boxes through customs because I'm sure they'll raise a few eyebrows. Of course, they're completely uh, legitimate and harmless and so forth, but they may, it's unlikely that they've ever seen anything like that before. And I was also speaking with uh, Dr. John Hall, one of the world's preeminent experts on electronic harassment. And, uh, of course, we'll have our exact replica of the Shroud of Turin on display with Dr. Gary Chang who's going to present the latest scientific evidence, he says, proves this is the actual burial cloth of Jesus and contains evidence of a resurrection event. So, I, you know, I, I really want to fill the joint and, and give our seven amazing speakers a full house. So please call the box office, order your tickets, last chance uh, that I'll, or at least my last opportunity to ask you, 905 721 
3399. And of course, uh, the shroud, for some, is, as I say, proof of Christ's resurrection and therefore of everlasting life uh, for all who believe in him. Uh, we're going to continue in that vein over the next 45 minutes or so because we're going to discuss life after death and perhaps the best evidence for the existence of an afterlife lies in the phenomenon known as the near-death experience, or NDE. Lee Whitting serves as a chaplain at a major main hospital. He pastors the Union Street Brick Church in Bangor, Maine, and its publications director, and is, rather, publications director for the International Association for Near-Death Studies. His interest in NDEs began as a child when he drowned in a lake near Branchville, New Jersey. Lee Whitting, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine. Pleased to be here, Richard. You owe, you have, rather, a, a Ph.D. in near-death studies. Is that correct? A uh, doctor of ministry. A doctor of ministry. Okay. Studies. Now, uh, let's, let's dial back uh, to this incident in Branchville, New Jersey, as a child. Uh, tell me about this, this drowning. Sure. <clears throat> well... Uh, I was about seven years old. Um, this is a little cottage, still in the family, as a matter of fact. Uh, my dad built it right after World War II. And I was uh, wading out into the lake, and uh, what happened was, of course, the lake went out gradually and then dropped off dramatically. And when, it, when I stepped too far, I went down. And I came up once. My mother had just gone into the cottage, and uh, I, I came up once. I screamed for her and, of course, emptied my lungs in the process. And once I'd emptied my lungs, I started sinking right to the bottom. Down you go, yes. Um, So there I'm going down to the bottom of the lake, but suddenly my soul was up in a birch tree watching as my mother came out of the cottage. She heard me, fortunately, ran down to the shore, uh, dove into the lake, and found me and hauled me out. She was smart enough to throw me face down over a log, pumped on my back. And all this time, I'm I'm up there watching this go on. Uh, I understood exactly what was happening, and I also saw that there was a a light that I could go to. But I saw my mother was very upset and uh, figured I'd better stick around, and then I was back in my body. Um, The interesting thing about it is that for years afterwards, I had this dream, and it was a dream that I interpreted as being uh, my sinking down in the lake and looking up at the light receding. And um, when I was older, in my 20s, I went back to the lake, dove into the lake, just to check this out because it had been such a persistent dream, and dove down, uh, you know, flipped over on my back as I was underwater and looked at the surface of the lake to see if that's the way it really looked. It did not. It was uh, evenly lit by the sunlight all the way across the lake. And it wasn't until later when I started reading about the, the whole effect of the tunnel and the light that I realized that actually that's what I had been dreaming about. I had been dreaming about falling back through this tunnel, seeing the light get further and further away, and I'd interpreted that as my sinking into the lake. Do you recall, I mean, your, your memory is quite vivid, and why wouldn't it be? This is a life-altering experience when you almost lose your life. Uh, can you recall the precise moment when you're drowning and you realize 
this is it, I'm gone. I think I was out of my body before my body stopped breathing. And I think this is something that can happen uh, to people. Um, I've seen this in the hospital as well, even before people die, you know, technically die with their hearts stopped. Um, there are um, instances where they're right out of their bodies, maybe up at the ceiling. And in fact, in talking to people who've gone through this experience, and I, I've, as a chaplain, I've talked to hundreds of people who've had various forms of an uh, out-of-body or near-death experience. Um, you, you don't have to, you don't have to be totally dead for that to happen to you. When um, you realize that your soul had come out of your body, and now you're looking down and, and, and viewing this whole scene, including your lifeless body from above, I mean, how do you, how do you, what goes through your mind? I mean, do you not panic? Some people report having panicked. I felt at the time, and I remember this pretty clearly, that it seemed entirely natural to me. And I think perhaps children have uh, more a sense of the eternal and the nature of the soul than we do when we get older. And so I sort of attribute it to that. I think perhaps I just realized that this is what happens when when your body dies. Uh, you, your soul leaves your body and has this opportunity to to look around, to see what's going on, and then if it chooses to, to depart into the light. And how else did you, you feel when you were up in that birch tree? We often hear about, uh, from people, uh, you know, feeling like they're, they're being embraced by just this un, overwhelming sense of unconditional love and so forth. How did you feel? I didn't get that far. Um, many people will see uh, a guide, a family member, an angel, um, someone to, to lead them into the light. Sometimes they just travel on through a tunnel and into the light themselves and, and meet people on the other side. I didn't get that far. I just got far enough to realize that I had a choice. And no one said, you know, it's not your time yet, you have to go back, which many people do here. I just I just knew that uh, I, it was up to me. I had that decision to make, and I decided to go back into my body. But you did see the light. I did, I did, and uh, but I didn't understand at the time, and and uh, it was that dream that just haunted me until I figured it out. In many ways, you know, this um, these experiences do change your point of view. For instance, right after that, I became, as a child, very interested in astronomy. Uh, all I wanted to do was um, go. In, have my mother take me up to New York in the Hayden Planetarium. I wanted a telescope in the worst way. She finally got me one. And I'd go out at night and I would uh, stare up at the stars. I'd spend hours out in the backyard, you know, looking at the moon and the stars. And, and I've never um, really understood exactly why, because I don't have any memory in my near-death experience of having traveled out that way. But um, even in, in the wintertime, uh, in our little house, we had an attic, and I took took over the attic, and I built my own planetarium with a, a little projector that I'd gotten from a store at the Hayden Planetarium, and I built a, a skyline, and I had sunrises and sunsets, and 
and I, I would go up there and for hours I would just um, uh, look at look at this simulated star uh, site that I had built for myself. Perhaps you were hoping to catch a glimpse of the heavens. Something something was going on there that I I wasn't aware of at the time, but I but I do think about that. When you talked about this, or did you talk about this with your parents immediately afterwards? I never did. You no, never did. Never did. Why not? Were you afraid? No, I don't think it was fear. It was um, I'm not sure why. Uh, many people have that reaction. Um, perhaps it's um, embarrassment or a sense that if I if I say something like this, you know, my mother will think that I will either it will either scare her or she'll think that I'm being foolish and and I don't want to appear foolish. But I I don't even remember thinking that through that much. I just kept quiet about it for for years and years. All right, we'll come back and continue to discuss the near-death experience. Lee Whitting serves as a chaplain at a major Maine hospital and pastors the Union Street Brick Church in Bangor, Maine. His publications, director for the International Association for Near-Death Studies, and his interest in NDEs began as a child when he drowned in a lake near Branchville, New Jersey. Back with more of our discussion right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Lee Whitting is with us. Uh, Lee, we should mention uh, the uh, the radio program, NDE Radio, and uh, that's available on TalkZone.com. That's right. Uh, uh, it's uh, into its, well into its second year at this point. We're on um, every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern, and I try to have at least one guest on um, each show. Uh, talking about near-death experiences like like my own, uh, I think it's really important that people begin to realize how common this is. It's it's not that unique uh, an experience, and in um, many different ways that the brain can shut down long enough for us to catch a glimpse of the other side. And I think that's why when you die or come close to dying, or you have some major um, accident or uh, event, you know physical event, something that injures the brain or stops the brain from interfering and interpreting, that's when we get the clearest picture of what's going on on, on the other side. You, you've heard all the, uh, the, the debunkers and the skeptics and the arguments, uh, and, and they would say uh, that um, if you stimulate certain uh, regions of the brain, certain cortexes of the brain, you can create... Uh, sort of an out-of-body experience. They've done this in, in, I believe it was in Switzerland a few years ago in a, in a laboratory there. They, they stimulated a, court, uh, a region of the brain and the, and the, um, the subject reported, seeing the, uh, the tunnel and, and uh, the, the feeling that they were hovering above their body and so forth. How do you respond to that, Lee? There are a lot of... Uh, I'm a, I get these questions from doctors in the hospital all the time. Uh, as well, because they they want they're looking for a um, uh, an explanation that involves either the shutting down of the optic nerve, which creates the the idea of a tunnel and the fading light. Um, but there have been several cases where people have not only left their body, but they've observed from outside their body what uh, is going on in the operating room. They say um, they'll tell me, well, gee. I was up by the ceiling, and I'm watching the doctors trying to get my heart started again. And one doctor said this, and the, and the nurse said that, and 
um, she she um, oh one example that's been cited um, several times is the, the nurse put uh, a man's false teeth in the drawer, uh, and they couldn't they, they didn't know where to look for the false teeth afterwards. He said, "Oh, well, I saw you put them in the drawer." Well, he was dead on the table at the time that he made that observation. People leave their bodies, leave the room, will go into uh, maybe the the visitor's room where the family is waiting and hear things that they say about the situation. Um, one man reported that his uh, grandmother, who hadn't smoked in years, was so upset that she uh, took up smoking again. She said she went out, he, he saw her leave to go outside to smoke a cigarette. So these are things that um, uh, can't be accounted for. You can, you can perhaps... Uh, simulate the uh, the physical feeling of dying uh, by stimulating the brain, but you can't uh, conjure up these uh, what they call veridical experiences, experiences that they couldn't have taken place any other way except the fact that you uh, that the that the soul was there to observe the event. Yeah, we're, we're constantly having to, to to sort of redefine the parameters of physical death. Uh, and, and there have been a number of cases when uh, individuals, patients that were in a, uh, a deep, deep coma and, and, and thought to be, you know, beyond recovery, no hope, uh, no brain activity, and those people came back. Uh, so is it, is it possible that even though we think someone is clinically dead uh, and that there is no brain activity, there is, in fact, Somewhere deep within the recesses of that brain, there is something going on. A consciousness still exists. Well, the consciousness exists in the soul. Um, the, when our soul leaves our body, it travels with all the information that uh, the brain contains. Uh, and so, so we have this, we have this uh, source of knowledge that is both in the brain and in, I guess you could call it the mind or the soul, it's uh, it, it, that has been understood, I think, as far back as um, of the Gnostic period. You know, in, in 200, uh, there, there's uh, the Gospel of Mary, for instance, uh, is uh, is one place where they, unfortunately, a page is missing from it. But um, Mary is telling the disciples, Mary Magdalene is telling the disciples um, something that that Jesus supposedly told her, and she says. Um, he does not see through the soul nor through the spirit. This is a this is someone who's dying, but the mind, which is in between the two, and I think that's a really excellent description of of how that information is shared. Some people suppose that you know there's an akashic record somewhere or uh, consciousness that that is totally outside of both uh, the brain and the mind uh, that we draw upon, but um, you know that's just supposition. I, I know you were raised a Catholic, and you you dabbled in, in Buddhism. Yes, um, studied at uh, Columbia. And and uh, the Union Brick uh, Union Street Brick Church is that Presbyterian? No, it's uh, I'm ordained uh, um, congregational. Uh, we're not really affiliated with any national organization like the UCC or the NACCC, although I was ordained through them. But um, we have a very different form of. <laughs> I guess you could, I, I guess you'd call it a form of worship. It's very informal, and um, we uh, instead of my standing up and doing a sermon, uh, 
what we do is we we have about twenty twenty five people. We have tables uh, that's in sort of a horseshoe shape. We and we sit around the tables, and I'll lead the service, but it's open to anyone to speak about anything any at any point. And we have conversations that completely uh, defy reason as far as the, a church service goes. But it's a very um, it's a it, it's sort of like um, I guess I would compare it to Quaker meeting, but everyone's talking. You know, the Quaker meeting is a situation where everyone is, is silent. They sit together. Everyone's considered a minister, and um, they're moved by the inner light to speak from time to time. Well, we're talking all the time. It's uh, uh, it's it's a very um, you couldn't do it with a larger group than we have, but it's a very moving experience, actually. Um, but I don't know if you can, you know, sort of recall the, the catechism and so forth. But where does where does the NDE, the near death experience, fit into sort of the the biblical narrative, uh, uh, Christian teachings? Um, I don't know. Is there any conflict there? Uh, when we think of, okay, when you die, you go to sleep, and, <clears throat> and then there will be, you know, the judgment day and so forth, and then you will be resurrected. Uh, is there any conflict between the NDE and, uh, the, you know, the teaching of, of the church? Well, some churches, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, for instance, believe that there's a soul sleep, that when we die, we just uh, are in sort of a coma state until uh, the second coming. Uh, but St. Paul said, St. Paul, who had a near-death experience, by the way, said that uh, we, do, we don't sleep. And um, uh, as a matter of fact, he was, he was stoned to death in Lystra. A uh, mob turned on him. And um, he said after that, I knew a man in Christ, you've, I'm sure you've heard this quote, yes. above 14 years ago. And he says, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body... So he's even using the phrase that we use today, I cannot tell, God knows. Such a one caught up in the third heaven, and I knew such a man, and of course he's talking about himself. And again he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. How he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. And uh, he says, of such and one I will glory. Um, he, uh, He, in what, 20, 30 years after the death of Christ, had captured the entire notion of what Christianity is all about. I mean, he articulated in the most profoundly theological terms what it was that Jesus came to do and what Jesus accomplished by his death and resurrection. Paul is incredible, and I don't think he did it just by himself. I believe that in his trip to the third heaven, he was given information that that made it possible for him to become uh, the spokesman and and the person who then went out to the Gentiles and pushed Christianity ultimately throughout the world. Back to the the NDE. Why doesn't you you say it's more common than than most people realize? And I agree with you. Mm. Uh, but I guess the question then would be, well, why doesn't that happen all the time? Well, you know, it it does. It happens well. The, not an actual NDE. NDEs happen to between 3 and 5% of the population, which, when you figure that out, is something like 15 million people in this country alone, well, in the United States alone, have had 
uh, near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences. That's a lot. That's more people than have seen an unassisted triple play. Oh. <laughs> it, it, that's right. It's huge. It's huge. And what I'm doing, what I'm trying to do, not only in my chaplain work, but also on the radio, is I want people to talk about it. And now you're, this is the conspiracy show, right? There has been a conspiracy in the churches since, uh, since the uh, church fathers in 300 set about um, codifying religion. And uh, they threw out a lot of the personal mystical experience. They threw out all of the Gnostic uh, readings uh, on the light. Um, they, they really tried to control in all ways that they could, uh, primarily by uh, saying the, the only way to salvation is, by, is through the sacraments the church sacraments. Um, if you don't confess to a priest, if you don't receive um, the body and blood through communion, then you're going to go to hell. That has been a conspiracy because that, you know, it's not just uh, Teresa of Avila who's, who saw visions of, of heaven and of God. Uh, many, many people did. Um, and you, you can do it. You don't have to die to do it. People can do it through meditation. Uh, Buddhist monks have done it. Doesn't, you don't have to be Christian. This is a, something that's available and uh, to, to anyone that wants to pursue it. And um, because of that, um, and because the Church has, has been so controlling about these things, I, I, I'll tell you something that, that is a wonderful experience, uh, or example, rather, of, of that. Um, in 1341, there was a huge debate between the Orthodox Eastern Church and the Catholic Church, and there was a there was a man named um, uh, Barlam. He was the spokesman for the West, and I think he came out of Spain. And then there was um, there was a saint. Uh, let's see, was Saint Gregory of I'm trying to remember. Saint Gregory, sure, he's one of the yeah. the, um, he, so the hierarchs they, of the Orthodox Church. They both, yeah, he's a saint. They both uh, uh, decided to have this debate. In, and they went to Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, uh, you know, where that beautiful mosaic of Jesus looking down exists. And they debated this question about light. And, and, and basically they were also debating the question of whether this, was a, that this light of God was something that was uh, readily available to, to, um, to mystics, to people who meditated, and um, and and the uh, and Gregory, um, I'm thinking that's his, that's the, the name, um, won the debate. I mean, he he really made the argument, and and, and all of these bish- these bishops who traveled from the west and from the east to hear this discussion agreed, but the Western Church was not willing to exo- to change their position on it. The Eastern Church, on the other hand, uh, did, and so there's a lot more uh, light imagery. And, um, for example, uh, the notion of icons and, and um, meditating on the on a picture of a saint or a picture of Jesus in an icon. Of course, the Eastern churches are full of icons. Uh, the, the icon is a window into heaven. It's a it's a it's a way of focusing your attention. And uh, meditating, and um, it's a it, it, 
can very well be. I, in fact, I've got a couple of icons right in my office that I, I look at all the time. And to look into the eyes of Jesus in a painting is, uh, is, a, is a very powerful thing if you're of a mind to do it. I agree. That's why they call orthodoxy the world's best kept secret. <laughs> a little plug there. <laughs> it's a beautiful faith. Listen, uh, Lee, uh, we'll uh, take a time out. Okay. When we come back. We'll continue to delve into near-death experiences. And why don't we throw open the phone lines as well? I'd love uh, to hear from people who have had a near-death experience. We'll do that. Excellent. And we'll get back to uh, more of our conversations with Lee Whitting, the host of NDE Radio on TalkZone.com and a chaplain at a uh, major main hospital and pastor of the Union Street Brick Church in Bangor, Maine. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right here. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And uh, we are back with Lee Whitting, uh, the host of NDE Radio at TalkZone.com. And uh, that's... The subject of conversation every week on uh, his program, near-death experiences. Uh, Lee, what about uh, sort of less uh, comforting sort of uh, experiences when when people have these near-death experiences? Instead of having a glimpse of of heaven, what about glimpses of hell? Uh, In your research or uh, experiences, does that ever happen? It does. Uh, They're called... DNDEs or distressing near-death experiences. Um, a very good source of information about those is uh, Nancy Evans Bush, who is a former president of IANS, and has written a book called uh, "Dancing Past the Dark." And she had a she'd lived a perfectly good life, um, and then had this distressing near-death experience that she didn't even understand at the time. Her experience was that she. Um, was out in space uh, feeling very lost and alone and these um, strange images that uh, she later identified as um, the the, the yin yang uh, circle you know the the interwoven dark and yes. light yes. with the dots the opposing dots she said they were telling her that her life was was hadn't happened that it was all a fiction that um that we're living in a matrix reality that had no bearing on anything. That I mean, it was terribly upsetting to her at the time. And she didn't even recognize that uh, symbol until years later. She said she was looking through somebody's book and saw it and threw it across the room. She was so upset to see it because that that had been the symbol that was in her experience, her, her distressing near-death experience. The thing that uh, most people say is if you stick it out, if you were there long enough, you can get through it. And um, uh, Eben Alexander wrote a book called Proof of Heaven. It was on the bestseller list not too long ago. And uh, his experience, uh, he was going through a bacterial meningitis, shut down his brain. He said that he was in a, in a terrible, horrible, cauldron-like place, which could be interpreted as hell. Um, but he... But he got through it. He was in this coma for oh, at least a week. Came through it, and and then he was in a beautiful garden. He was on, a, on the wings of a butterfly, flying through a, a garden with giant flowers. And uh, there was an angel uh, as a, there as a guide for him. And so, 
it, it's often said that we put ourselves in this place because either we're frightened by the experience of death or we're um, confused by it or it's been such a traumatic death uh, suicides especially um, can can uh, go through something like this and when that happens um, you just have to stay with it the um, a Tibetan Book of the Dead takes you through some very dark places as you go through the bardo in the Tibetan Book of the Dead you're um, you're not a happy camper for quite a while till you break through and uh, find yourself in, in a good place. So that's, uh, I think that's part of the literature and part of the understanding that it can happen. But most near-death experiences that I've, the accounts that I've had, have been uh, happy ones. Uh, I would say, you know, maybe one in, one in 20 is, is, is darker. And there have been people who've written books. Uh, to Hell and Back is one, and... Uh, uh, one fellow said he, he saw all of these uh, people suffering in cages, and he saw Adolf Hitler in a cage that was uh, being burned, you know, eternally, and so forth. The, the um, is that a metaphor created by the mind, do you suppose, or or is that place real? Well, he thought it was real. He thought it was real. You know, the earliest story that we have, or one of the earliest stories we have, is a, is a Plato's account uh, of a soldier named Ur. He is brought back. He's killed on the battlefield, and along with his companions, they're brought back to be uh, burned on a funeral pyre. A pyre, and uh, this is like ten days after he died. And Plato reports that he suddenly he, the guy sits up, you know, just before they light the pyre, and says, "I've been sent back to tell you what happens when we die." He said, "I was." traveling after i died i was traveling with with my companions with the souls of the companions that had been brought back uh, across a beautiful field and we came to a place where we were judged and some of us went he said i i was told that i wasn't going there because i was going to be sent back but some people went down into a, a punishment place and some people went up into a heavenly place but it wasn't forever. It was something that people went through, and after they had pretty much cleaned the slate, you know, either they'd enjoyed the privileges of, of uh, having been good, led good lives, or suffered the consequences of having lived bad lives, they all rejoined together in the field and greeted each other and talked about their experiences, what was hell like, what was heaven like, and then they go on uh, to be reincarnated. That was Plato's take on it, and and it's the deepest um, uh, story of uh, a near-death experience that I've that I've encountered because it goes through heaven and hell and comes out the other side. The other um, aspect of the near-death experience is when people do, in fact, uh, pass over. Uh, let's say uh, they're in palliative care in a hospital, uh, and and the families. Uh, that are sort of sitting vigil and watching over these people, the things that they witness uh, or hear uh, the, uh, the you know a, a loved one you know say uh, in in the final moments. Um, do you ever discuss that on your program? Oh yes. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a story about a nurse uh, that a nurse told me. Um, she uh, had a patient. He'd been very unhappy, very grouchy. Uh, miserable in pain 
And she came in one day, and he and he was so much happier. And she said, "Well, this is a change. You know, I, I haven't seen you this happy. I'm so pleased to see that you're that you're in a better place." And he said, "Well, my son came to visit me, and he said he's going to take me home tomorrow." And she said, "Well, I thought your son had died." And he said, "Oh, he did. And he's coming tomorrow at one o'clock, and he's going to take me home. And could you come and sit with me?" And she said, "Well, you're not even that sick. You're not you're not going to die." But she said, "But I'll be here." And the next day, she was sitting with him, and at 1 o'clock, he raised his arms up to the ceiling with this great smile on his face, and he died. Remarkable. Remarkable. Another story <laughs> that a nurse told me. I'll just get you to hold on to that. I want to hear this story, Lee, and we will do that first order of business after this timeout. Lee Whitting, NDERadioTalkZone.com, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Lee Whitting is uh, with us talking about near-death experiences, and he certainly had one uh, when he was very young. He drowned in New Jersey, and his soul left his body, and now all of a sudden he's looking down uh, from above as his mother drags his lifeless body out of the water uh, and performs uh, CPR. And uh, that certainly changed the tra trajectory of his life. And why wouldn't it? Now, Lee, before the break, you were going to, we were speaking about uh, uh, medical staff who have witnessed some pretty remarkable things. This is interesting because when you, you know, when you talk to them sort of privately, and I'm talking doctors, nurses, emergency responders, and so forth, they will, they will tell you things about, you know, things that, that defy Rational explanation, scientific explanation, uh, relating to um, near-death experiences and 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 uh, people witnessing patients dying and the things that happened to them. You had another story about a nurse. Yes, this one is uh, pretty remarkable. I've only heard of one case like this. There was this patient. The nurse was very fond of her. She did not want to be resuscitated. She wanted to be, you know, left alone. If if she coded, she did not want to be revived. But uh, the nurse really liked this woman, and when, she, when in fact the alarm went off that her heart had stopped, the nurse, realizing who it was, came running down the hall with the intention of doing CPR. She said, I was knocked flat on my back by a force that I do not understand. She said, there was nothing I tripped over. She said, I was knocked back on my back, and she said, I could not get up. She said, there was a weight sitting on me that was so heavy that I couldn't move. And uh, she assumes, and I think rightly so, that the force of this woman, uh, this woman's desire to die was so great that she decided that she was not going to be resuscitated and she was going to hold this woman in place until her body had, was thoroughly dead. What do you think happens to the soul after an immediate moments after we die. I mean, you got to a certain point where you're hovering over the body. Mm. Uh, but you chose to go back into your body. Mm -hmm. And if, let me before let me stop right there. Do we always have that choice? No, we don't always have that choice. Um, uh, you know, it depends on how much damage has been done to the body, I'm sure. But I have seen... I Actually, I've participated in a couple of events that I consider to be miracles. Uh, one, I'll, I'll give you one example. Um, this fellow hung himself. 
his his mother found him hanging was able to lift him up sufficiently that she and I don't know how because this guy was over six feet tall and she was tiny but she was able to lift him and extricate him from from the noose he comes to the hospital the doctors know no heartbeat they get the heart going but they say there's no activity in the brain he's brain dead she asked me to pray with her over him and we joined hands and we stood on either side of the bed and we prayed for her son the next day i came into the hospital i went over to the room and he was standing up arguing with her <laughs> he was fine he was there was no damage to his brain whatsoever and uh i can only attribute it to him to a miracle because the doctors could not understand it they had no explanation whatsoever you imagine what what would the world be like if everyone had an nde and and those people you know they came back and it obviously it would change the perception the world would be would be so different um there is a there is a quote in Jeremiah. Let me read this to you. This is Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And I take this to mean all of us because we're an extension, according to Paul, of that. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And it declares the Lord, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. In other words, he's saying there's going to be coming a time when we will all know what people uh, who've had near-death experiences know um, if, if they, you know, if they think about it after they come back, um, and you know, in a situation like that, the world would be so enlightened, <laughs> and you know, not everyone's going to have a near-death experience, and that's why I think people who've had them have an obligation to share their gift because there's not it's nothing less than a huge gift from God to to have had one of these experiences and that's what I'm trying to encourage you know with my radio show with NDE radio is to have people tell other people what's going on on the other side so that they will have hope you know I, I go into the hospital they give me a, sh a sheet every morning that has all of the people all of, all the names and all of the religions in the years that I've been doing this, there are fewer and fewer religions named. Most people now say, if they're under 60 or 65, they say no preference, none. Uh, they have no no affiliation to any church, and uh, pretty much they're they're not thinking about God whatsoever. The real young kids are into zombies and vampires, and I mean everyone's got this sort of spiritual longing in their hearts. But the kids haven't been given any direction, and they don't know which way to turn, and, and they're coming up with all of this, you know, Marvel comic fantasy stuff. It's, it's a disturbing trend. It is. It's, it's very scary because they're missing, they're missing the whole point. And uh, I don't know what we do about that, but...
I think the, uh, talking about the near-death experience is certainly a very important part of it. Um, do we have time for a couple more? Uh... Yes, please. Okay. I'll tell you the worst death I've been a party to and the, and the best death. The worst death I, I attended in the hospital was a man who was incredibly unhappy. Uh, he was dying of cancer. He was in terrible pain. His family was, uh, uh, they were all emotional wrecks, screaming and crying, and, and he was. And when he died, I felt this cold, icy invasion of my body, of his soul trying to take me over. And I excused myself from the room because I felt nauseated. I went out into the hall. I knew exactly what was happening. I went out into the hall and I said, you're not coming in here. This is not where you belong. You have to move on. And, and it left. That was, it's only happened to me once and I hope to God it never happens again. Wow. The best experience I ever had was with a, uh, he was a grandfather, a great grandfather. Must have been a wonderful man. I didn't know him while he was conscious. But his family was there. All the generations were in the room with him. The room was packed with people that loved him, and he loved them. And they were saying, don't worry about us. Uh, God is waiting for you. Don't worry about a thing. Uh, we love you, and uh, everything is fine. He was given total permission to die. And when he died, it was like, uh, this is hard to describe, but it was almost like this was not something visible, but it was like a golden light poured down into the room. It was almost like, if, if you could imagine, honey filling <laughs> filling the room without actually being honey filling the room. It was so amazing and so uplifting. It was almost as if the whole room had been taken on the journey partway to his heavenly reward. And I was stunned. I, w I was amazed. And that's only happened to me once, but I would welcome it. I would welcome that experience over and over again. Sometimes an NDE can can tear families apart. I've, I've, I've talked to people who have had spouses, partners that have undergone an NDE. Uh, and for them, uh, it, it wasn't a happy ending because their, their partner changed. Uh, they're, they're, they found that they had little in common. Uh, they were just sort of irreconcilable differences. And for the person who had the NDE, there was no going back to that old life. Absolutely. Uh, people have gotten divorced. Um, their values change. I mean, p people who've been in business their whole lives have an NDE, and suddenly they think, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing with my life? I'm supposed to be here helping other people. You know, my job is to, you know, to do whatever, you know, to, to heal the sick or to uh, feed the poor or, you know, suddenly instead of working on Wall Street, they're down at the homeless shelter uh, preparing meals for, for the, you know, people coming in off the street. And uh, this can, you know, if you're, if the man suddenly does this and the wife who's used to living in a fa fancy house in the suburbs realizes that they're not going to be able to do that anymore it, it can devastate a family but uh it is such a it's such an eye-opener to the person who goes through this that i think they have to go they have to go with that it would be a mis mistake for them to ignore that just for the sake of uh, keeping peace in the family 
there are also uh, uh, cases in which the the person that suffered the NDE, when they came back, they their physicality, their appearance changed significantly. What's that all about? Mm. It, it can change you. It can heal you. Uh, that uh, the fellow who hung himself, for example, was fine. I mean that that was a healing. Um, uh, Paul, who was Saint Paul, when he was stoned, his body was broken and was damaged, and came back to a to a healed body. Um, people have all sorts of abilities afterwards, uh, psychic abilities. Uh, there's a, a Canadian woman I interviewed on my show who who can move things with her mind. Uh, I mean, <laughs> through a near-death experience, she gained um, psychokinetic ability. Um, people can be psychic. Uh, people can. There was a fellow who uh, learned how to play the harp. He had a near-death experience. The angels told him, "You're going to go back and you're going to be a tremendous musician." He'd never played an instrument in his life, and he was playing. Uh, he was playing beautiful music within weeks of his NDE. Tony Sicoria, the um, struck by lightning near Cooperstown, New York, and and uh, became a concert pianist. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Have you heard about Tony's case? Yeah, yes, I have. Yeah. Remarkable, remarkable. Well, I have to commend you uh, on NDE uh, radio because um, ultimately, you know, we so much of the airwaves are, are filled up talking about ephemeral things, uh, and they are important. We, you know, we do have one foot uh, in this reality, and we need to talk about it. But ultimately, the as far as I'm concerned, you know, the most important question. The most important issue is what happens after we die, uh, and and you're talking about it uh, all the time, every week, on TalkZone.com. Well, it's a it's a privilege for me to be able to do that. Uh, the IANS group uh, has been for years. You know, it was founded by Raymond Moody and and um, Elizabeth Kubler Ross and others who are, are still working in the field. And they've been collecting these near-death experience stories uh, for a long time. It's a huge uh, treasure trove of uh, material for people who might want to research this or to learn more about it. Well, I appreciate you uh, hanging out with us tonight. This was a really enjoyable conversation. This thank you. This has been great, Richard. Thank you so much. All right. Lee Whitting, thank you. My thanks to Eric and Albert and uh, Tim Spreen, of course, back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.